Let's turn, shall we, to Acts 6. As you saw and you look in the bulletin, that is Acts 6. You read that right. Acts 6, verse 8 through 760. Oh, yeah, I heard the first groan. We are going to read selected portions. So when I eventually have you stand, we'll read selected portions and I'll kind of move us through the text as best I can to get you at least oriented to the parts we haven't read. And if if for some reason we're standing for a long time uh, and you need to sit down, do sit down. Okay. in fact, yes, yes, let's do that. All right. After stopping for gas in Montgomery, Alabama, Sam went on to drive for five more hours. After five hours, it finally hit him. He had left something behind at the gas station. His wife. Can you imagine just on the side? Can you imagine? Can you imagine what that wife felt? Can you imagine Sam trying to explain that to his wife? I would have loved to have been there on that conversation. Well, stunned when he realized that he's been driving for five hours without his wife, he pulls over in the next town. And this is obviously before cell phones or they didn't have cell phones at the time. He pulls over to the first police station he can find and he tries to explain the situation to them to see if they can get in touch with his wife back five hours at the gas station they were at. To his embarrassment, he said this to the police. He said, I just I just didn't notice her absence. Now, for church going folks like us, because most of us here are kind of used to going to church. For church going folks like us, it's easier than we think. To realize that we've left behind the presence of God. I mean, if we were to be honest with ourselves and have conversations with ourselves about this week and our personal lives and the way we have thought about things this week, the raging feelings that we've had this week, the times we were at computers, uh, the way we interacted with people, the things we said to people, the way in which we talk to people, the manner in which we talk to people, our families, possibly the way we discipline, maybe our vision and our values for our families. If we're honest, we know how easy it is not to notice God's presence. Or how easy it is not to notice that He's absent. We can see that in our church life. We can see that in our ministry to others. In fact, I sat in a room full of pastors not too long ago. It's probably, well, it is probably a while ago. But I sat in a room full of pastors and we all talked about how easy it is to minister to someone. And leave God's presence behind in the midst of your ministry. So what we're going to do, I want you to look at Acts and look at verse 9. Actually, we're going to go 6, verse 9. Look at this together. It says, Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and those from Lycia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. Then go over to verse 11. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Now drop down to verse 14. We have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Now go to 7.1. And so the high priest said, are these things so? What we have here is that 
the topic, the point of this passage is leaving behind the presence of God. And the question is, who's doing it? Who's leaving behind the presence of God? You have the religious leaders speaking on behalf of Israel. Are they doing it? And then you have Stephen representing the apostles at this point. Also, this new community that's being formed called the church. Are they the ones doing it? It's a monumental trial. It's a trial on who just drove five hours, possibly five decades, possibly hundreds of years, not noticing that God's not present. You're left without him. Now, the answer is previewed for us in verse 15, and it's beautiful. I mean, some folks tend to this is, you know, this is the way we kind of read the scriptures and we got to kind of push ourselves and lean against reading the Scriptures this way. Usually we read verse 15 and we personally think of our own piety or the piety of someone. But there's a real, there's a real intent for this. Look in verse 15 in chapter 6. And gazing at him, all who, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Now the question is, Who's left God's presence behind? In verse 15, you get a preview on what the answer is. Now, those of us that are getting used to the Bible and those of us that possibly are used to the Bible, do you remember a story about someone else whose face shone like an angel? He came down from a mountain and he was carrying God's law. And when the rest of Israel saw him, they said, put something over your face. It's too, it's too glorious. It's too bright for us. Who was that? Moses. Moses's face shone with the divine light of inspiration. And Stephen's does now. Stephen is about to be, through the spirit inspired sermon, Rightfully interpret Moses, the law, the temple, and all the Old Testament. He's shining with the light of divine inspiration. And that's a clue to who is the one that left behind the presence of God. Okay? All right, now, so Stephen's about to do that. Now, as Stephen preaches this trial... As he preaches his sermon, the trial unfolds in chapter 7. That's what's happening. What's going to happen to you and me and what's supposed to happen to the original audience and what's supposed to happen to the original hearer is that God's presence advances towards you right before your very eyes. In other words, God's presence is to advance and move as we go through this sermon. And as we go through the sermon, it gets so close that God's glory and his grace presses in upon you that you almost say to yourself, it's so close. He's so close. I wonder if I'm going to suffocate on his supremacy. But then you don't. You don't suffocate on his supremacy. You actually start realizing, I'm not in want. I'm lying down in green pastures. My soul is restored. I'm walking in right paths. I'm not fearing evil. In the midst of my enemies, I'm safe. Divine goodness 
and loyal love overtakes me. As God's presence advances towards us, we start realizing that God is for us and he's with us. That's the goal of this passage. Let's stand for the hearing of God's word. Let's start at verse 2. And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Now, that's a very important point here. Now, what's happening is he's going to start with he's going to start with Israel's history. The sermon starts with way back in the beginning to the first person in Israel's history because he wants to set the proper context of God's presence for Israel. Okay, so the proper context is being set. Then he talks about Abraham. Now go down to verse 9. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. Now what we have, the emphasis here is on 12 patriarchs. Remember the 12 sons of Jacob. And he focuses on Joseph, particularly in Egypt. And what he's going to do in this particular section, he's going to say that there, there's a greater pattern, a long pattern in Israel's history of leaving God behind. And so there's the pattern of who's actually leaving God's presence behind that's beginning to be pushed in through this narrative. Now go to verse 17. But as the time of the promise drew near, God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. Now go down to verse 20, because it's the time of Moses. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. Okay. Now in this narrative, Stephen's going to answer the charge. What's the charge against him? You're against the law. You're against Moses. You're against the temple. And so he answers the charge. And basically during this particular section, he's saying, who's really against Moses? Who's really against law? Torah. Who's really against the temple? Now we go down to verse, well, let's give you a little flavor of his little interaction with them. Verse 35. This Moses, whom they rejected... Again, this is the Israelites way back in Egypt already have a track record. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made you ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me, from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness and the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received the living oracles given to us. Verse 39, our fathers refused to obey him, but they thrust him aside and in their hearts they turned to Egypt. So on and so forth. All right, now go down to verse 44. In verse 44 now, we're tracking with the temple I mean, the tabernacle eventually leading to the temple. And what's being talked about here is, is where is God's presence? How is God's presence rightly to be understood? So that's what happens there. Now, let's go to verse 51 and we'll kind of wrap ourselves up here. Verse 51. You stiff necked people, uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. Which of the prophets did not your fathers persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law, 
as delivered by angels and did not keep it. That is an unbelievable transition in the midst of a sermon. (laughs) You stiff-necked people. It's like he's going, he's traveling down this road and then wham! It actually makes me feel pretty good. I feel better about my bluntness. I feel better about kind of hitting people in the face with the truth periodically. There's a great precedent right here. You stiff-necked people. Now, this is a... This is an unfinished sermon. It's probably the greatest unfinished sermon ever preached in the history of the world. Stephen never finishes it. Let's pick it up at 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open." I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. They cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Our great God, as Abraham says, the God of glory. You are the Most High. You do sit on your throne. You do and have unleashed heaven. You've unleashed your spirit upon your church and upon this world to build your church, to open eyes, to work in hearts, to wake us up. And so, O Lord, by your word, would you wake us up in the manner and the way in which we need to have that done? Help us see where we've been asleep. And help us to walk with lightness of foot, with joy in our hearts, with the glory of God thundering in our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we're going to start backwards this morning. What we're going to do is we're going to, we're going to look at what's called the, I'm going to call the ark. I'm going to give you some, some ways in which we're continuing to grow in reading and applying our Bibles rightly. Every passage has a point. It has a sense. It has a, a point that God is wanting to push into your life. Now, the point is like an arrow. And I've talked about this before. I want you to think of in the text, there's an arrow, a sharp arrow, a shaft, an arrowhead that's sharp. That's the point. And that point is being launched. So that point's flying through the air. It has an arc. It's going somewhere. Well, we're going to start with where the arrow is going before we even look at it. We're going to look at the point. We're going to look at it in a moment, but I want you to see that the point is meant to do something to us. The arc, the trajectory is flying through the air to hit your heart, to hit my heart, to hit the church's heart in a certain way. And what it's designed to do is this passage is here to advance God's presence in your life. It's here to advance His glory and His grace in your life, in your family, 
in this church as a community, growing in fellowship and nurture and being an instrument in each other's hands. It's, it's advancing God's presence in all areas of your life and ministering to others and how you read the Bible and how you pray in all areas. Okay? If I was to state it negatively, it would be this. This passage is here to prevent you from leaving God's presence behind. And how you instruct your children. Prevent you from leaving God's presence behind and how we interact with each other. To prevent us from leaving God's presence behind as you go about your work during the day. Instead of doing it when someone's eyes on you, but doing it as if God is your audience. This passage is so powerful because it pushes in the presence of God into the nitty-gritty of your life. That area right now that might not and may not have seen the light of day for a long time scares you to death to go in that area. There is a dam in Jerusalem. And this dam in Jerusalem is holding back the waters holding back the great waters of God's grace. We saw that last week. There's a dam in Jerusalem and the waters of God's grace, the saving realities of His presence are just stacking and piling and pressing against the walls in Jerusalem. And they're just, they're, they're about ready to break. And things are happening all over the place. Now in chapter 7, the dam breaks. And what's so fascinating is that God uses a sermon to break the dam. Do not let that go by you. I wonder, if we were to just kind of walk around here today, and I was to say, young man, how do you think God works in the world today? What's the, what's the number one way God works in the world today? What's the number one way that you hope and pin all your hopes on when you're thinking, I need God to speak to me. I need him to to work in my life. I need something to happen. What's your answer? (laughs) We'll have to talk later, but I won't do that. But what how many answers would you get a sermon? The preached word. How many would we get? We'd get a worship service. We'd get gyrating music. We'd get a book of a bestseller. We'd hand out a tape of a seminar. But what we get, as Whitfield said, the thunder and the lightning of a sermon. So the dam breaks and the dam breaks God's presence is advancing. So I want you to see that the point of this passage is God's presence is about ready. And in chapter 7, the dam breaks and Acts 1.8 is fulfilled right here in this passage. Remember the promise in Acts 1.8. Jesus gathers his disciples and he says, you're going to receive power. The Holy Spirit's going to come upon you and you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Judea, Samaria... And to the ends of the earth. Now look at 8.1. 
And Saul approved of his execution, and there arose that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions. Go down to verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And then the rest of Acts is the advancement of God's presence flooding the nations. The dam breaks. So there's two things immediately we're going to notice. Again, we haven't even got to the point. We are looking at what the point is meant to do. And what the point's meant to do in this passage is advance the presence of God in your life, in your families, in this church, in the way you read the Bible, in the way you pray, in your ministry, in evangelism, in church planning. God's glory from the very beginning advances, it moves. Now, there's one other observation I want us to see is that the sermon broke the dam. But I want you to see that suffering and persecution did too. That God used and shepherded for His purpose the martyr of a man. The suffering of a man to send forth His presence. Does everybody see that? Now, what we're going to do next week, so you're going to have to come back, we're going to look at the specifics. I know everyone's in and out in Christmas, but we're going to keep plowing through Acts. As I told you, there's no Advent series. This is the Advent series, the book of Acts. Now, we're going to look at specifics. In other words, when God's presence advances in our life, when God's presence advances into a hard heart, when God's presence advances into a religious heart, when God's presence is advancing, what does it look like? Practically speaking, what does it look like when God's presence advances and hits a a changing heart, a justified heart? What does it look like? What does it look like when God's presence hits a book people heart? Someone who's reading the scriptures, what does that look like? What does it look like when it hits the faithful heart in distress, the obedient heart? What does it look like? In fact, all these applications are in chapter 7. All these people, these hearers are in chapter 7. What does it look like to the ministering heart? But today, what I want us to spend the rest of our time on is what is the point? The point that causes, the point that's the power of advancing God's presence. What's the point? What does it? What is the thunder and the lightning in this passage? What's the root of that causes the fruit? What's the cause that leads to the effects of the applications that we'll look at? If God's presence is to advance in your life, what does that? What does that? Here's the point. The Lord of glory finds you. The point in this passage is the Lord of glory finds you. Now, I had spoken with one of you this week, so I have permission from that person to talk about this. He, was, he gave me permission. This person and I met and we had talked for a while. And he had relayed to me about some very dark times that he has had over many years of his life. 
So much so that these dark times have become very familiar with him. They're like a shadow constantly lurking near him all the time. He can sense when he's kind of moving in those times, when the dark times are going to come up and grab him and the shadow is going to overwhelm him. And they are hideous times that he describes. He told me that he has searched and he has strived and he has strained to find comfort amidst these times. He's tried everything spiritually. He says he's he's tried to find the truth that will bring me comfort in those times. He says he's tried to understand a certain truth. That he needs to understand to give him comfort in those times. He said, maybe I need to think of all the truths I already know. Maybe I need to believe them more, stronger, harder, more powerful, trust them more. That that's going to give me comfort. You name it spiritually, he's tried it. He was telling me desperate to find comfort, desperate to find peace. And then he said it. And I told him when he said it, it hit me in the heart like a thundering punch. I mean, it was a boom. And there was a pause in the conversation. It was almost as if heaven held its breath after he said it. He said, Jeff, all this time I've been trying to find comfort and then comfort found me. The Lord of glory finds you. And I want you to see in Stephen's sermon, he says, watch this. Watch. I'm going to tell you three people whom that's true. Don't miss it. He's preaching before a hostile audience. You know, what do you do? You've got charges against you that you're anti-God You're anti-scriptures. You're preaching against the law. Now, obviously, the new community and the new teaching is teaching something about the Torah and something about the law that's being construed as if they're against it. Something about the temple that's being construed that they don't like the temple. They're against it. Against God's presence. So something's going on. And what he ends up doing is telling talking about three people in this passage. And I want you to watch. Watch what happens to Abraham. Look in verse 2. Look how he even begins. And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. Hear what I'm about to say. He goes on, he says, Hear me, the God of glory appeared to our fathers, Abraham, when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. The God of glory found Abraham, but I want you to see where the God of glory found him. Mesopotamia. When did the glory of God find him? Long before he was known to be the the father of the faith, the spiritual giant that we all think of him to be. In other words, we begin to engage with Abraham and the first thing we think of is this unbelievable faithful person, this unbelievable godly person. Now let's hit rewind. Let's go through, yeah, he had his high moments and he had his low moments. You know, the time with his wife and the Egyptians, that was a low moment. And you move through there, but you get down here, keep going, keep going, keep going. 
and we find out that he's an idolater in Mesopotamia. Right after the chapter of the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel was a judgment on God because sin had escalated in the world to such an extent that it was rising literally to the heavens and God says, I can't smell that anymore. Confuses the language, scatters the people. And one of the ones scattered, one of the ones that participated in the escalation of sin at that time was an idolater named Abram in Mesopotamia. Far from God. God's not even on his mind. He's not seeking God. He's not trying to find God. He's not looking for God. He's, he's enjoying his beautiful wife. I mean, Sarah's told she had beauty that was legendary. Two kings wanted her in the harem. So he's enjoying his beautiful wife. He's enjoying his family. I mean, he's consumed in the way he, you know, whatever he does, which was cattle and lambs and livestock and preparing for a family getting on and advancing, having enough resources, make a name for himself, make his dad proud. I mean, he's just a normal person pursuing his idols, dominated by his desires, and God finds him. It says, Abraham. God calls him. I want you to see in what Stephen wants Israel to see, and what Israel needs to hear, Abraham's as far from God as you can get. Spiritually, and the emphasis on Mesopotamia, before he was even in Haran, which is Samaria area, far from the promised land, way back when in the beginning, as far from God as you can get. And the God of glory finds him. Do you feel that way? Do you think that you can possibly go a distance far away from God that he can't find you? There's a lot of, a lot of people in the Bible that thought they could. Jonah, I'm not going to Nineveh, I'll go to Tarshish. And that's where the action is, man. That's New York City of the, of the ancient world. That's where I'm going. God wanted him to go to Nineveh, where these big Assyrians lop off heads. God will find you. Now, watch what happens to Joseph. The Lord of glory finds us. Look what happens to Joseph. Look at verse 9. In seven, and the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. Now, that's a very interesting phrase. Joseph is taken from the promised land into the land of Egypt. Now, for us, again, we're thinking, well, okay. So they're moving around. A lot of people moved around the Old Testament. But we have to put ourselves in the shoes of that ancient Near Eastern world and the mindset of the Israelite. And that was, when you are in the promised land, you're in the land of light. When you're in the promised land, you're in the land of God's presence. When you're in the promised land, you have comfort. You're righteous before God. You have peace with God. If you're out of the promised land, especially down to Egypt, you're in darkness. 
You're far from God. Far from comfort. Far from peace. Joseph, Joseph is experiencing what every Israelite dreaded. To be out of the land was a sign of God's curse. That you, you're not favored by God. God doesn't like you. You're forsaken. So Joseph probably had to struggle through a lot of things as he's on that caravan heading out to Egypt. Don't you think? Now, look at verse 9b. Let's continue with 9a. But God was with him. What a contrast. Keep going. And rescued him out of all his afflictions. The plural form of afflictions needs to be seen. Afflictions. One after the other, after the other, after the other. Plural. But God was with him. God found Joseph in Egypt. He found Joseph in a land of darkness. He found Joseph in a place where God's not supposed to be. He found Joseph in the midst of his afflictions. He found him. Now, some of you are thinking, yeah, but come on, Jeff. We all know the story. Joseph was a righteous dude. He's a good guy. I mean, he's suffering persecution for, for righteousness. He's been given a dream that he's going to be the ruler of Egypt. I mean, the ruler of Israel. That his brothers are going to bow down before him. He might have had a little youthful vigor and zeal on his side. Possibly some pride in there as well. Jealousy, obviously, on behalf of the brothers. But the brothers are the sinners here. He's being persecuted. Of course God's going to still be with him. Well, we just have another question this text answers, and Stephen's right on, and he says, okay, okay, if you think that, that's fine. You know, he's the righteous dude, of course God's going to be with him. And you're thinking to yourself as you're reading this, well, I feel like I'm more like the, the 12 patriarchs. I feel like I'm more like the jealous guys. I feel like I got a lot more meanness in me. And the question is, who did God find through Joseph? Ooh. Look at verse 11. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. 14. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. God finds jealous, hateful, conspiratorial, in the midst of their murderous intentions, in the midst of their ill intent, in the midst of their rage and jealousy. All these brothers want to kill him. One has to say, no, let's just let's sell him. We can't do that. In the midst of all that, what was God doing? Forming a deliverer who would eventually save them. Forming through one who's being sinned against 
the very means in which God will find those 12 brothers. That is incredible. I mean, think about that. Do you see how shocking grace is? Let that good news kind of creep into your soul a little bit. It's so good that we have a hard time believing it. That the very ones who are trying to get rid of Joseph are the very ones who get found by God through Joseph. Okay, there's one more person to watch. Look what happens to Moses. Go up to verse 17. But at the same time, at the time the promise drew near, what's the promise? It's the land promise, the specific promise. The real estate's coming. Palestine's coming. Canaan's coming. When that happens, verse 17, uh, they've been granted to Abraham. The people increased. They multiplied in Egypt until there rose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. Now, in the original text, it's a stronger word in Genesis. It was not just that the children were left out to be exposed to the elements to die. They were drowning them. So it, 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 probably had a, it probably had both. I'm sure there were some Israelites that were forced to do things that they couldn't do that. So they would just kind of expose their boy. And either he drowned or a gator or a crocodile got him. But what we need to see, what's being highlighted in this text is that what's being said by Stephen is that when Moses was exposed at three months as a baby, there is not, and you and I know this, there is not a more helpless picture, there's not a more hopeless picture, there's not a more powerless picture of someone who's unable to not just save themselves, but even take care of themselves than a baby. And the text says, God finds him as a baby. I mean, the text literally says he was beautiful in God's sight. And what that means is that in God's eyes, his favor was on him. That in God's eyes, he absolutely loved him. And in God's eyes, he's going to find him. And so he does. And so we have this helpless baby in the Nile whom God finds. Now what's pictures being portrayed here is not just this baby Moses, because this Moses ends up growing up and God uses him to find a whole nation. And so in Moses and his helplessness, like a child, we get a picture of in the Nile, a crop can get him. The waters can get him. But we also have a people in Israel, an Israelite people that are under slavery of a Pharaoh that doesn't know. And so you have two mirrors of helpless people. And in that helpless people, God finds them. Now, Stephen preaches a pretty good sermon, doesn't he? Now, what's happening is at the end of his sermon, he switches from telling the story to becoming the story. So the camera starts zooming around here. We're going to end on this is that the camera has been focused as he's been preaching through redemptive history and telling us about Abraham. The Lord of glory finds him telling us about Joseph. The Lord of glory finds him, tells us about Moses and eventually the 12 patriarchs under Joseph and now a whole nation. The Lord of glory finds them. And now in the midst of his sermon, it's broken up. The camera's shaking, and now it's on Stephen. Look at verses 54 through 58. Chapter 7. 
Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he was full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open. I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out, they gnashed their teeth. Is there, do you notice anything different about Jesus, the Son of Man, in this particular passage? See if you can find it. There's something different about Jesus that is not mentioned in any other place in the Bible. It's the exact opposite when it's talked about Jesus. See, some of you nodding your head. What is it? Standing. What does Jesus propositionally and pictorially presented in the Scriptures doing? Sitting. This should take our breath away. I mean, why does Jesus sit? Why, why is He always sitting at the right hand of the throne of God? Why is that always propositionally stated by Paul in the epistles? Why is it pictured in Revelation? He's sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. All kings sit. All kings sit because all kings are in control. All kings sit because when they sit, their work is done. It's not a rest of fatigue. It's the rest of a royal king who's reigning over everything. He sits at the right hand because he is satisfied. He is finished. His kingdom has come. It's done. But here he's standing. It's almost as if he jumps to his feet and says, that's my brother. I became a man for him. I lived a perfect life of obedience for him. I died on the cross for him. I rose from the dead for him. And I sit and reign on my throne for him. And I will stand with him. Always. To the very end. That's an incredible picture. The Lord of glory finds you. And He finds you in such a way that His Son stands for you. To the very end. So, brothers and sisters, there's some of us here that need that need to trust in a Savior that finds you. You've trusted in all kinds of saviors that you find. You've trusted in the strength of your will. You've trusted in the strength of your own faith. You've trusted in the strength of your righteousness and own goodness. You've trusted in the strength of some other false peace and comfort and happiness. And the Scriptures only gives you one who's so glorious that He finds you. And you can trust Him to find you. And so trust this Savior for forgiveness. Trust this Savior who does find you completely with His righteousness, with His goodness. And then find, let this truth get into our soul. The rest of us that that do know Jesus and we're somewhere in this process of growing in our relationship with Jesus and somewhere in the process of 
Maybe we've left them behind in some areas that we're becoming aware of. Let the truth, the power of God's presence, finding you, let that into your soul. Don't keep it at a distance where it's safe. Let it into your soul and let it thrill you. Let the beauty of that overtake you. Let it give you peace and let it give you comfort. Let it give you strength. Let it, let it start empowering you in new obedience. Let it start strengthening you to kill a particular sin. Yeah, we'll get really particular next Sunday. But right now, be gripped by the fact that He finds you. Amen.